Good morning. I want to begin with um, a confession and an apology. They say that confession is good for the soul. When I was invited to speak on Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I did a double take. Are you serious? Six weeks on Psalm 23? Whatever number of minutes I've got, I'm not quite sure. I better check how many minutes have I got. On one verse? And so that's the confession. Once that's out of the way, let me move to an apology. I owe your leadership an apology because this is profound. This is deep. This is rich. This is wonderful. And whatever number of minutes I'm allowed, I still haven't been told that's a dangerous thing. <laughs> I know that I can only begin to scratch the surface of this with you. What David does is he takes a familiar picture of sheep and shepherds, something that was an everyday feature of his world. And he gives it a twist, as we'll see, that is remarkable. And then David, great David's greatest son, takes this same metaphor, and he develops it and fulfills it. So I have a clicker here. I'm going to now just check, Alex, if this is going to work. It works. Some of you are smiling because that indicates that you recognize this television character. This is Sean the Sheep. If you don't recognize Sean the Sheep, then I recommend Sean the Sheep to you. Sean the Sheep subverts the whole notion of sheep and shepherds, if you see it. Because Sean is a smart sheep who is outwitting the shepherd. That's not the world that David inhabited, and it's not the metaphor that we're looking at. What David does is he takes a very familiar idea of a shepherd and sheep, and he gives it a twist. But let's just pause to think of sheep and shepherds. In Jerusalem, if you get a chance to go once restrictions lift, there is a, a wonderful place called the, the biblical zoo. It's a zoo, and they boast that they, they try to gather together animals from the Bible. And it should not surprise you at all that amongst the many animals they have in the biblical zoo in Jerusalem are sheep. They have sheep in the zoo. I don't know too many zoos that feature sheep, but the biblical zoo in Jerusalem does. And that's because, I understand, I haven't counted them, but I take it on good authority that there are something like 400 references in the Bible to sheep and something like 100 plus references to shepherds in the Scriptures. And that's because in the Bible world, both Old and New Testament, this is a very common feature. They live in rural settings, some in cities, some in towns, but even close to the towns there will be sheep. Jerusalem, the biggest city 
in the days of the Lord Jesus was surrounded by hills where there were many, many, many sheep. And that's because there was a major industry in raising sheep and bringing them to the temple in Jerusalem so that they might be slaughtered. So whether you're looking at Old Testament or New Testament, the world of the Bible is familiar with sheep in a way that a boy from East Belfast like me just isn't. So I had to do a bit of research. What's the, the, the deal with sheep? What's the whole idea with sheep? And you know this. They're the animals that give wool and meat and milk. Did you know they used them for milk? And they were well suited to a nomadic lifestyle of moving around, a very useful sort of device to have if you had to move about. And so Sean, or maybe we should call him Simeon, the Bible sheep, would waken up in the morning and he would be taken out from the fold by the shepherd and he would be led to where they were going to feed that day. In the pasture, the water would be provided by the shepherd. And after a period of grazing, then the shepherd would gather them up and take them off in the, the sun and shade. He would find a shady place and they would have a siesta. It's starting to sound very attractive, isn't it? Someone, it sounds like a cruise holiday to me where you're taken about and you're fed and you're watered and you're treated very well and everything is, is attended to. And then after they've spent the afternoon having their siesta, they go back to grazing and then they're taken back to the, the sheepfold. So that's a life in the day of Simeon, the Bible sheep. The shepherd ordinarily would carry a, a club and a, a staff. So the club was there to protect, to uh, beat off the attackers and the, the crook was there to um, help guide and rescue and care for the sheep. I probably haven't told you anything you don't know. But with that all around you, in the time of David, the author of this magnificent poem described as the most famous poem in the, in the world, Psalm 23. What David is doing is he's borrowing that everyday picture of life all around. And in fact, it had done more than that. It had become already by David's time, part of the way of thinking of God's people. They thought of the shepherd as a national leader. It was a very common idea by the time of David that their leaders of the nation were like shepherds. The job of the leader of the nation, whether it was the king or a judge or a prophet, whoever was raised up by God to be the leader of the nation had the job of looking after and guiding and protecting and caring for the people. So that idea is found in Moses. In Exodus 2, there's a reference to the leader of the nation acting like a shepherd to the people. You'll find it in the life of Joshua. Numbers 27 verse 17 uses the same idea. Joshua is a shepherd to the people. And you find in 2 Samuel 7, that there's a reference to the judges, the people that God raised up before the kings came as the leaders of the nation, that these were the shepherds of the people. So this idea of the leader, the, the judge, the great big man of the nation, whoever he might be at any particular time, as a shepherd and the people as sheep, that was already well embedded. That's um, 
already part of the everyday way of thinking to the point that the prophets, such as Ezekiel and Ezekiel 34, use it as a metaphor whenever the leaders of the nation fail. They are described as shepherds who are more interested in looking after themselves than in looking after the sheep. And so for many, many years before Psalm 23, it was already part and parcel. It was part of the everyday mental furniture of God's people that we're like sheep, we're in need of care and protection, in need of provision, in need of guidance, and the big man at the top of our society, he's like the shepherd. That's his job to do that stuff. And it's a small step from that to saying, well, if that's the way the leader of the nation relates to us, his people, it's, it's also a way of thinking of God as the shepherd to the nation. And that was a familiar idea as well, that God is shepherd to the nation. You'll find it as far back as Genesis 49, that it's not just the kings and the prophets and the leaders, but God himself is portrayed as the shepherd of the nation. Genesis 49, 24. So what David does when he sits down, whenever it was, to compose this magnificent poem, he, he's taking something that is already very familiar. So if he had said, the Lord is our shepherd, people would have yawned and said, yeah, and what's your point? Yeah, we know that. We've got that. The king is our shepherd. The, the prophets are the shepherd. The the the, the the judges of the shepherd, and, and yeah, God, God's our shepherd. Yeah, 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 yeah. Move on. You're not got something. You, you're meant to be the hit guy, the guy who writes these popular songs, the guy who's got away with words. Is that the best you can come up with, David? The Lord is our shepherd. God is our shepherd. But what David does is he gives it a twist. And what he says in this first verse is... Yahweh is my shepherd. And what he does is give it a radical personal twist. So it's not just that God is great and powerful and distant and leads the nation. Not just that kings are great and powerful and lead the nation, but that individuals can have a relationship with the God of heaven. Now, it, he wasn't the first to say it. Back in Genesis 48, Jacob blesses his son Joseph, and he says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. So Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, the founder of the nation in that sense, he spoke of Yahweh as his shepherd. Of course, he was the first person to hear that name. When God revealed himself to Jacob and changed his name, this is the name he uses to explain who he is, who he's dealing with. So now what David does is he says, the man who was the, the start of our nation, Israel, Jacob, was able to say in his very high exalted relationship to God that Yahweh is his shepherd. 
Now what David does is he opens it out and says, it's not just for the VIPs. It's not just for the elevated leaders of the nation. It's not just for the kings and the, the great ones. It's something that can be said by an individual. Yahweh is my shepherd. This name, Yahweh, an older generation thought of it as Jehovah. It's the, the name that devout Jews will not pronounce. They use a term, Hashem, the name. They regard it as such a holy and special term that they will not utter the word. And when they write, you'll very often see in Jewish literature, the capital G, a dash or a hyphen, and the letter D. And that's how they write the word God when they're using this name of God. And when you read in your Bible the Lord and you see it's with a capital letters, L-O-R-D in capital letters, it's a translation in English of this word Yahweh, Jehovah. It's the name that God used to explain himself to Moses. Do you remember the story how Moses, the shepherd, is out wandering around looking after sheep in the desert? Forty years he spent doing that after his great collapse when he had tried to rescue God's people by himself and through his own efforts, and that had spectacularly failed, he ends up shepherding sheep in a desert for 40 years until God meets him in a bush that burns and is not consumed. And Moses goes over to look at this and to, to try and work out what is happening here, and there is a voice and there is a conversation between the God of heaven, who says his name is Yahweh, and Moses, and one of the things that Moses asks is, what's your name? Who are you? I would like, in other words, to get a handle on you. I would like to be able to control you. I would like to have some purchase on you so that you'll turn up when I want and do what I would like, and I would like to have a little bit of manipulation, and God will have none of it. Very often, that idea of us Connecting and controlling God is not very far away from our hearts when we come in prayer. God is not a genie. He's not a, a heavenly concierge to turn up and service my felt needs. And so what God says to Moses is, my name is, and then in bad English he says, I am that I am. I will be what I will be. It's a bit of a, a word puzzle. It's a bit of a, you scratch your head and say, well, what's that mean? What God is saying is I don't deal in labels that you can then apply and try and manipulate me. I am God. I am the one who is without beginning, without end. I am the self-existent one. Everything else, Moses, in other words, is dependent on me, is contingent on me. This universe that is so vast and complex and impressive is but the work of his he spoke it into existence, and he sustains it by his powerful word, and he says, I am. I am. If you want to understand who I am, then you're going to have to listen to what I say and watch what I do. That's how you know who I am. It also has a, a future orientation. 
I will be what I will be. It's not just that I am the great first cause, not just that I'm the one who kicked off this universe, but I am the one who sustains it and the one who is bringing it to its purpose that I have decided what that will be. It's my glory and my honor. That's why we're here. And all of this is packed up into this Hebrew word that God gives to Moses. I am and I will be. It also carries the idea, one commentator, Leon Cass, says, of, of the future and, and of the consistency of God, that he is faithful to his people, faithful to his creatures, faithful to his creation. He hasn't just made it and then abandoned it. He hasn't just created it and then changed his mind and, and moved off on another project. He is utterly committed to this universe and to his people. I am that I am. And that was the bush. Quite a lot to unpack in the bush. Some years later, God speaks on a mountain now to Moses and to the people in Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7, if you've got a text. And there you see that God unpacks a little bit more of who he is. And he says that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So this is the one that David says, I'm in a personal relationship with Yahweh. Later on, this insight of an individual relationship is picked up by Ezekiel in chapter 20 and chapter 34. It's picked up by Isaiah in chapter 40. The idea takes root that the God of heaven is interested in a personal relationship with individuals. When we come into the New Testament, the Lord Jesus picks up the metaphor of the shepherd, and in Matthew 18, he talks about a shepherd who goes out of his way to find one sheep that got lost. A remarkable insight that God he says his father's will is that not one should perish, that God is interested in the individual. So it's not just the Old Testament, not just David's insight. It's now taken up and reinforced by the Son of God in flesh, the Lord Jesus, who says the father heart of God is such that the 1% matter, the individual matters. There are no ordinary people, said C.S. Lewis. If, he said, we could see what each individual child of God would be like in their glorified state. We'd be tempted to bow down in worship before them. There are no unimportant people, no minor people, no insignificant people, no ordinary people. And this is the teaching of the Lord Jesus. But then famously he goes on in John chapter 10. And some of you have been waiting, thinking, when's he ever going to get to John 10? Well, the Lord Jesus picks up this metaphor and he develops it, but he does better. He fulfills it. You know John 10. The Lord Jesus uses this as a description. He says, you've heard about various people who come along to be the leaders of the nation, and they're not doing a good job. It's an echo of the satire that 
Ezekiel 34 gives about the shepherds who are so interested in themselves that they neglect the flock, the people. And he says, I'm not like that. I am the shepherd par excellence. I am the good shepherd. In contrast to those failed leaders, my followers know my voice, they follow me, and they are safe in my hands. So he takes this metaphor and he drives it home. But he does more. He himself adds two new twists to it. First of all, he says, I'm not come just for the people of Israel, not just for the nation that are specially chosen by God and God has worked for hundreds of years and prepared them for the Messiah to come. That's what the Old Testament was about. It was God preparing the stage of human history for his son to take on skin and to come and walk amongst the people of Israel and to show what God is like as he speaks, as he acts and interacts. He says, I'm not just here to fulfill all of those promises. I'm here to do that, of course. But I'm also here to open up relationship to God, to people outside of the flock of Israel, to the Gentiles, to those who are not Jewish. I have come to open up this relationship that David spoke about to anyone, anywhere, at any time. So that's the first development the Lord Jesus applies to this metaphor. And then he secondly does a very significant thing. He says a shocking thing. He, he talks about himself as the shepherd who dies for the sheep. Now, on one level, that's a pretty silly thing to do. I mean, the point of a shepherd is to protect the sheep. The point of the shepherd is to guard them, to chase away the predators, to make sure that they're well looked after. A dead shepherd's not much use to the sheep. It's a rather self-defeating proposition. Noble, perhaps, glorious example, maybe, but not a whole lot of use to the flock. And the Lord Jesus says, I'm not just here to guide and to provide, I'm here to die. I am the good shepherd who will lay down my life deliberately, willingly, graciously, gloriously for the sheep. And he did. So he doesn't just add a new twist. He himself fulfills it in a way that is magnificent. He's the good shepherd. But he's not only the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. Hebrews tells us that he's the great shepherd who was brought back to life again. The shepherd who died and stayed dead isn't going to be of any help to anyone. And so the Lord Jesus in this passage and elsewhere makes clear that he has the power not only to lay down his life, but to take it again. And Hebrews talks of him as the great shepherd who is raised and brought back to life again by God. And then he's described by Peter as the chief shepherd, the one who will return and reward both his people for how they've served and lived. You do know that there is an accountability ticket 
with following Jesus. You do know that, don't you? One day I will have to stand and give an account of what I've done today. And each day of my life is before him as an open book. And it's the same for all his followers. He gives us resources. He provides us with what we need. And then the day will come and he'll say, now, old son, what did you do with it? Did you use it for my glory and honor or did you pinch it for yourself and squander it? And so Peter takes up this idea that he will return and he will reward the people who follow. But the under shepherds, the leaders of the flock will also be assessed and rewarded. And that's where I go back to where I started, my apology to your leadership. They have a very great responsibility to shepherd, to look after, to care for God's people. And I hope you pray for them. I hope you support them. I hope you encourage them. They are under shepherds to the chief shepherd. So whatever time I had, I'm sure I've long since gone over it, so I better stop. But let me just pull a few threads together because no one ever did tell me how long I was to speak. When I read scripture and look at it and explore it, I always like to come to the question of, so what? Or even better, now what? You see, at one level, you might come along and say, well, he, he, he managed to talk for an extraordinary long time about one verse. But now what? It seems to me what this is saying is that Yahweh, the Lord, who is, who was, who will always be, is willing to open up a relationship to anyone and everyone who comes by surrendering to the good shepherd who died and rose again. And until you take that step, you're not yet a sheep. Whatever you are, you're not a sheep. You're not his sheep. You've got to start there. The relationship is offered by him, but it has to be received by faith, recognizing that the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a great philosopher, a great teacher, a miracle worker, someone who was extraordinary in all sorts of ways, and he was, but he's the very son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. And when you take that step, you become one of these people who can say the Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean? Well, it means that he will provide all that he knows I need. Let me say it again. He will provide all that he knows that I need. As a boy, I used to read this translation. If he's my shepherd, I can have whatever I want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So whatever I want, doesn't want me to want, so I'll get whatever I want. I just have to find the magic formula. It's back to the idea of God as the concierge. I had it as a boy, and sometimes it comes back to haunt me, and I suspect I'm not alone. Let me say what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the prosperity gospel, so-called, that you follow this and you get whatever you want. It doesn't mean that. It's widely on sale today, but it's poisonous and it's untrue. 
And this is not a naive formula for a trouble-free life, for here I must give you a spoiler alert. This poem goes on to talk about death and suffering and struggle. Because following the shepherd does not mean a life free of hazard or difficulty. But the name says it all. The Lord is God. He's God only. He's God other. He's God over all. God is greater than all. And so he may be trusted in all situations. This is the one who invites you to come follow him and make him your master, lord, shepherd, if you like. If you want to know how you might join that flock, I'd be sitting here at the front happy to speak to you if I'm allowed to do that. But what I want you to do now is to bow your head with me and give thanks to God for his magnificent grace to us. Lord God, we thank you that we can say, not simply as a poem, not simply as fine words, but as a reality, that you are the one who meets our needs, all of our needs, as you know best. We thank you that you met our need of taking away our guilt and our sin through what the Lord Jesus Christ, your son, achieved at the cross. And we thank you for that magnificent demonstration of your love and your justice and your mercy and kindness. We thank you, Lord Jesus, you are the shepherd who laid down your life for the sheep and took it again. We thank you, Father, that you are the one who provides a community of your people that you call the church where we might grow and be challenged and encouraged and we might serve and we might grow more like the Lord Jesus. And I pray for the leaders of this church that they might be strengthened as they lead your people accountable to you. And for each of us, Lord, who are your people, may we look to you today and each day that you give us for all that you know we need and to depend upon you for its provision. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.